Hello, I'm Richard Hurley, the BMJ's Features and Debates Editor. Atrial fibrillation is associated with increased risk of stroke, heart failure, myocardial infarction and death. As global populations age, the prevalence of AF is increasing. From 700,000 UK patients in 2010 to as many as 1.8 million in 2060, predicted. Our latest head-to-head debate asks, should we screen for atrial fibrillation? And I'm joined by the authors. Mark Lone is a clinical lecturer at the University of Southampton, and Patrick Moran is Senior Research Fellow in Health Economics at Trinity College Dublin. Thank you both for joining us. Mark, you, you've written in support of screening for AF. Can you outline for BMJ readers a little bit more detail about how you'd hope this sort of screening could improve outcomes for patients? Okay, so I'll um, start with a little bit more background. So as you've mentioned, as you've mentioned um, AF is a major risk factor for stroke, so it increases the risk about fivefold. It also, um, it's a very common arrhythmia, so it affects um, 6% of people over the age of 65. And about um, 40% of all strokes in patients older than 80 years are attributable, attributable to AF. Um, so quite importantly, it can be paroxysmal, so it can come and go in a quarter to 50% of cases, and often these episodes are asymptomatic, so patients don't always know that they've got AF or have any symptoms, and it causes maybe between um, 25 and 35,000 strokes in the UK each year. These strokes tend to be more severe with higher mortality and disability, and they're costly with treatment costs of about £12,000 in the first year. So, as you've mentioned, um, the prevalence is increasing, and, and Patrick's quite um, aptly described that as a, a lumen epidemic. And um, importantly, we can detect it accurately. So nowadays, there are um, there's a plethora of different devices out there that can detect AF, including handheld single lead ECGs. So these are um, non-invasive, reusable, um, convenient and quite cheap, and they've been shown to be um, cost-effective for AF screening. They've got inbuilt algorithms that have good sensitivity and specificity. So one way to do this would be to um, invite people um, for screening, and those who screen negative could perhaps take one of these devices for a couple of weeks, screening themselves twice a day, and then um, any positive records diagnosed by the algorithm could be sent on to clinicians um, who are trained in, in the ECG diagnosis to um, to confirm the diagnosis. So this would um, greatly reduce the potential risk for any harm. And in addition, these single-lead ECGs are routinely used to diagnose other conditions such as old MIs or hypertrophy or or other um, conditions which may require potentially unnecessary investigation. So it would also reduce the risk of that by using a single-lead ECG. And then finally for this section, um, We've got effective treatments for, for AF, so anticoagulants um, reduce the risk of stroke by about two-thirds and death by about a quarter in AF. And there's new anticoagulants, which are um, cheap, um, easy to use, and don't require any any, any monitoring, the DOACs that we're all aware of, such as Apixaban. And we've got better at using them. So back in about 2006, um, only less than half of patients who were eligible for anticoagulation with AF actually received anticoagulation treatment. 
And that was one of the reasons why the National Screening Committee didn't recommend treat, um, screening program when they last reviewed it back in 2014. Um, whereas in 2016, now almost 80% of people who choose for anticoagulation are receiving it in the UK. Mark, could could you explain why the UK National Screening Committee uh, recommended against AF screening in 2014? Um, yeah, yeah, there were a few reasons for that. So um, one of the reasons was that at that point in time, there wasn't um, there was sub suboptimal anticoagulation or uptake of anticoagulation for a number of reasons. Um, uh, you know, guidelines weren't necessarily being followed. Patients were on aspirin, which which isn't recommended anymore, and GPs probably didn't have enough training in the use of the the newer treatments. And but that's changed, so that's um, quite importantly changed and improved, as we mentioned earlier. Also, they mentioned um, the lack of RCT data for um, and whether screen um, detected AF carried the same risk as symptomatic and clinically important AF. And they also highlighted the need, as um, Patrick said, for more cost-effectiveness analysis. And there are also um, some other important problems in terms of implementing the actual um, screening program, in particular in terms of who should read the ECGs. So um, I think, as I mentioned earlier, um, if you take um, sort of clinicians as a whole, such as GPs who haven't had recent or specific training on, on diagnosing AF, the sensitivity and specificity isn't good enough. And even if you incorporate algorithms into the pathway, it, it still doesn't remain good enough. So there is, either has to be a training program for um, clinicians who are going to do it, or else they have to be um, read or diagnosed centrally. So that would be a bit like akin to the cervical screening program where, you know, all the tests are sent off and dealt with centrally. So that's one way of um, of, of, of implementing a screening programme would be to do that. Thank you. And I think as well as the, the um, negative recommendation within the NHS, there was also a review carried out by the US Preventive Services Task Force on screening for atrial fibrillation with um, electrocardiography, uh, which was published in August last year. And that recommended against it as well on the basis that you know, screening with ECG hadn't been proven to detect more cases than pulse palpation. And a lot of those uncertainties around, um, you know, the effective screening on, you know, stroke outcomes in the medium and longer term. Yeah, I think um, hopefully for the next um, few years we'll get some answers and some um, more definitive data from the stroke stop study which will be interesting both of you both of you in your in your written pieces talk about a growing international momentum for af screening can you say a little bit more about those discussions what 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 is happening internationally around this this question and and has af screening been approved anywhere in the world i mean there are a few methods the af screen collaboration um uh, that was began um, by Ben Friedman, who's uh, that are doing a lot of work on this, and there are a lot of different um, research groups running trials at the moment, and also planning to run trials in the in the near future. But I think while while it seems to make complete sense, what we're lacking is really the major piece of the puzzle, which is a dem- demonstrable effect of screening on the primary outcome that a screening program is meant to affect. And that's the, the incidence or severity of stroke among populations with atrial fibrillation. 
And I think while we're walking up the path to having a very, very convincing argument to to spend and allocate the huge amount of resources that would be required to support screening, I don't think we're there yet because there are as yet no randomized control trials that show that screening um, it decreases either the incidence or the severity of stroke in screened populations versus unscreened populations. Mark, that sounds like a, a pretty serious piece of the puzzle that, that's missing. Um, you say in your piece that uh, screening for AF could be an effective and economical way to re- reduce stroke, but on what evidence are you are you basing that? And um, what what do you make of the, uh, what do you say about, um, you know, Patrick's um, insistence on R- RCT evidence here? Yeah, I think that was, um, they're very useful comments by Patrick there. And the, the, um, the AF Screen International collaboration that um, he just mentioned there, they've recently recommended on current knowledge that um, there's a strong case for AF screening now while recognising that large RCTs would be helpful to strengthen the evidence base. So they're the, the gold standard where patients are randomised into to screening versus non-screening. And um, there are some ongoing trials as well as the um, the trial which starting off led by um, Professor Mant at Cambridge along with um, Professor Richard McManus and Richard Hobbs to investigate this in the UK. Um, in terms of existing data, um, there's observational data that suggests that asymptomatic patients or patients who may not have clinically detected AF um, are at at risk of major events. And for example, the Orbit AF registry in the USA has shown that that asymptomatic patients had a a similar risk to symptomatic patients. So that's one way to look at it. Even even though they've had AF diagnosed, it may have been diagnosed incidentally because they didn't have symptoms. There's another European um, registry, EORPAF, and um, it actually found that mortality at one year was higher in asymptomatic patients, and that may have just been because they didn't receive as much treatment as symptomatic patients. And there are older trials, such as um, the AFFIRM trial, and they concluded that um, anticoagulation should be considered in asymptomatic patients, and that was actually an RCT, though there's, there is some controversy over the um, the risk with asymptomatic versus symptomatic um, patients. Um, re- recently, actually, there's some important evidence that's come to light, and in a prospective five-year follow-up from one of the screening trials in Sweden, um, they concluded that silent AF did have a natural course similar to symptomatic AF. So they screen people. The numbers are quite small, unfortunately, and the vast majority of patients remained asymptomatic, but there was a noticeable benefit in treatment. Again, the numbers were quite small, so it wasn't possible to do much subgroup analysis, but um, the all-cause mortality rates differed significantly between um, participants in the screening program versus um, those who weren't screened. Understanding the natural history of atrial fibrillation is a key a key part of this as well because all screening interventions are, are kind of complex interventions and especially when it comes to screening for atrial fibrillation because you're you're trying to detect sort of two types of, of patients. One are asymptomatic um, people people who just don't know they have AF or, or don't experience any symptoms and the other uh, group are the paroxysmal AF patients who only experience these things intermittently and I, so I think there's there there are differences in the with heterogeneity within the cohort of screen detected um, 
or potentially screen detected patients. And when you're comp when you want to evaluate a screening program, it's it's really what you're looking for is the the benefit of earlier detection and earlier treatment versus later detection and later treatment, not earlier detection versus and earlier treatment versus no treatment. So I think that you know that understanding of what happens to people, asymptomatic people or people with uh, minimally symptomatic paroxysmal AF in the absence of screening and how much of a benefit does it confer to screen and treat earlier and how does that balance out with the additional risks of anticoagulation is, is really a complex question. And you mentioned some studies there that seem to be pointing towards it being a, a positive balance of benefits and harms, which is good because we really do need an effective intervention in this area. But equally, there are there are screening studies out there, which even though they didn't necessarily look at like long term stroke outcomes, they did look at things like hospitalization rates at one year and found no difference between screened and unscreened groups. Um, and there is there is another is a rehearse AF study um, that looked at stroke TIA and systemic um, embolism um, events between screened and unscreened patients and found no difference at one year as well. So while I think, you know, we are we are kind of going in the right direction, it's not it's it's not a, a kind of a settled question. And there are major uncertainties um, hanging over it still, which can only really be be uh, um, be answered by, you know, the, the type of long term trials that are ongoing at the moment and are in pro are uh, planned to, to commence shortly. And I think it's really important that we let those trials take place before we rush to make policy on, you know, what is kind of, you know, a really pressing problem that people want to, to act on. Um, because I think once a public health intervention, like a national screening program is, is in place, it's very difficult to, to stop screening then after that. That's a really interesting comment and obviously very important. And it, um, I think it's also interesting clinically because we assume that, um, you know, most of these patients are um, are going to be asymptomatic. But, you know, we, we don't actually know whether quite a proportion of these patients do have um do actually have symptoms, but they've just been put down to, to old age, for example, such as dizziness and fatigue, and, and don't, or, or even side effects of blood pressure medications, and then they don't get investigated any further. So again, it's, there, there are, I, I agree totally with you, Patrick, there are lots of um, unanswered questions, and I think it's um, most people, you know, some people end up sitting on one side of the fence or the other, or on the fence itself. Yeah, and I think like that that kind of does speak to the level of heterogeneity that's potentially present within the the population of screen detected patients. And there 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 is some uh, research recently that looked at like baseline stroke risks uh, based on Chad's VASC scores, um, and that was a, a systematic review of um, stroke risk in untreated populations, and they found a huge level of of uh, heterogeneity within the baseline stroke risk. For, yeah. Per bad Chad's vast category, um, as well. So, if that that's often one of the criteria that's used to um, you know to identify the population for screening, based on you know what the baseline risk of stroke is. But there's there's even uncertainty around that because it's just not a, a perfect tool. And I think another challenge from a policy perspective is 
you know, even if there is a, a broad consensus that we should screen, uh, there isn't a lot of agreement over what exactly a screening program should look like. Before you can, you know, design and implement a, a program, is you need to know exactly what population you're going to screen. You need to know exactly what screening tests you're going to use, and how the program is going to work overall in terms of, you know, frequency of screening and intensity of screening. And I think a lot of the evidence to date that has that has showed, you know, promising results have involved, you know, different populations, different tests. And none of them have involved repeat cycles of screening. It's not a, a, an intervention that can be easily transposed into policy at the moment. Um, yeah, I think that's an important point as well. And, and economic um, modelling has suggested that screening every five years from age 65 to 80 has, has potentially the highest probability of being cost-effective. But I agree, it's, it's definitely not a simple um, programme to to, um, to implement and even... Um, even the you know the, the the information leaflets and the informed consent and how you um, train GPs to anticoagulate who diagnoses the ECGs it it is complex but I think um, you know it, it, the fact that it's difficult to implement shouldn't um, shouldn't stop us from from going if we think um, going ahead if we think it is um, if it is going to be worthwhile and cost effective but I think we can we can definitely agree that um we'd both like to see more um more RCT evidence and um I think we can probably both agree that um a screening program is unlikely to be um implemented without that <laughs> yeah I agree and one of the big advantages um of of screening for atrial fibrillation is the huge pace of technological progress that's been made over the last 15 or 20 years and the development of you know um portable easy to use one lead ecg devices but that yeah, yeah. rapid pace of technological change is sort of a double-edged sword because when it comes to evaluating these interventions you're trying to you're trying to hit a moving target in, in some respects yeah i think um, that that's a really important point and um I think it's important that to work with manufacturers and have them on board regarding the validation of any algorithms or the any other um, potential variations in technology. I think it's it, it's also interesting the way we're talking. I think you mentioned advances in technology. Um, you know, the new there's a new smartwatch on the market that does actually have an ECG integrated to it, an AF detection technology. So I think um, as clinicians, we will be seeing people who have self-screened themselves repeatedly at home so it's going to be interesting and clinicians are going to have to be um well read on the evidence and also um aware of the fact that you know as a group gps don't have um a great sort of you know they, they have good sensitivity and specificity but it's not sufficient um for diagnosis for safe diagnosis of af and treatment so there will probably have to be um changes made to diagnostic pathways um over over time anyway as well yeah, and while you know things like that, like in the 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 diffusion of that type of technology into like it's becoming commonplace in society almost now, that you know that can really improve the reach of a program, um, and people who wouldn't necessarily attend their local hospital for an ECG could potentially you know be 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 brought into a program like that. It also has major warning flags about um about overdiagnosis um, because I think that's something that it's becoming increasingly clear that you know more testing and more diagnosis 
is it doesn't necessarily translate directly into into better clinical outcomes. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. And with the, certainly with the Apple Watch, which has a, a sort of background PPG sensor, which isn't as accurate as the ECG running and flagging up alerts, um, that's probably going to generate some anxiety and some um, extra GP consultations. What a fascinating debate, and uh, we'll look forward to, to finding out when the RCT evidence uh, is available. You can read the debate online in full on bmj.com. And as always, we'd be delighted to know what you think, so please send us a rapid response. We republished the best as formal letters to the editor. I'll be back with more debates in future, so make sure you subscribe to us so you don't miss out. We're on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks for listening. <laughs>